growth in China is headed towards a structural slowdown. And that paradigm shift that we're describing in terms of the policy planners, what they're trying to do, and the reality as it's going to play out has very serious implications and the, the policy priorities have completely changed. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I am joined by Shazad Kazi, of, uh, who is a managing director at China Beigebook. Shazad, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me on. Even before we get into what's been going on this year, can you just give us kind of a 2022 uh, year in review of China, and then we can kind of dig into what's been happening so far this year? Yeah. So, you know, 2022 actually started off people can remember on a positive note, we were actually mm-hmm. seeing uh, the Chinese economy rebound from what was a mild slowdown at the end of 21. Um, and you were especially seeing the services side of the economy and consumption side of the economy finally rebound. Um, and things were looking really good till you had the Omicron outbreak um, uh, hit China. And then you saw that the government, starting really from the spring really from March onwards, starts to get really nervous and shuts down eventually Shanghai. And then you have Beijing go down into a de facto lockdown. And what you get over after that, uh, over over the the late spring, summer, through the fall, and then through, uh, you know, uh, till up up until end of November, is a repeated series of lockdowns under the so-called zero COVID policy that had existed in China for, you know, the year or so prior to that. Um, and all that good news and, and upbeat sentiment that you were seeing in January and February after the, uh, you know, uh, the opening of 2022 just dissipated. And what you got was one of, you know, just a successive weakening of the Chinese economy quarter after quarter, or sometimes month after month. Um, and, and the year just became one of the worst on record that we have had uh, inside of inside of China, outside of the early 2020 slowdown that you saw when, when COVID first hit. So 2022 being from potentially a positive year from the Chinese economy to being, as I said, one of the worst. Uh, so maybe like starting at that end of 2022, let's dive in a little bit to what's been going on this year. And from what I uh, can tell kind of from the report, there's a little bit of a tale of two Chinas that's going on right now because you still have some depression and stress when it comes to the real estate sector. But in terms of the economy, we're actually starting to see things pick up in terms of business activity. So could you kind of, is that your sort of assessment as well? And can you kind of walk us to, through those two areas? Yeah. You know, there, the, I think the tale of two Chinas is, I think, a good way of looking at it. Now, what happened at the end of 22, of course, is that we got the about face from, from Xi essentially right up top, right? We went from having uh, zero COVID to essentially having total COVID, uh, scrapping off all mm. lockdowns and restrictions. And then, of course, you saw just the eruption of uh, coronavirus cases uh, throughout the country, especially in the bigger cities. Um, and then, it's, of course, as predicted, it spread to the rural areas, especially during the Lunar New Year holidays as they were starting to take place. Now, the expectation uh, once zero COVID was scrapped was that you were going to get a bombastic recovery in 2023. A lot of the people positioned, as a matter of fact, markets positioned to say, look, you're going to get revenge spending in China. You're already seeing a property uh, sector easing going on. That's going to essentially be a property sector bailout. uh, And the government will probably come in with additional stimulus. So there was uh, and, and, you know, you're talking about oil price targets, for example, coming out at mm. over $100. This is what I call sort of the mega bull thesis on China uh, that came about at the end of the year. 
Now come to January and you see that big spike in consumer spending. Uh, you know, you see the travel and hospitality uh, gauges just skyrocket. Uh, manufacturing wasn't doing so well right at the beginning. Taking that story forward into February, what happens? This was the key month in order to understand, look, are you really getting that revenge spending surge? And, and, and from here on, we're just all takeoff? Or is this going to be in fits and start till the consumers feel more confident? And the data suggests that it is not a upward trajectory story. Consumer spending, especially on travel and hospitality, et cetera, pulled back. Consumers have pared back a little bit. However, on the positive side of the story, you are getting a manufacturing sector that is doing a little bit better. And I think very, very importantly, you're finally starting to get a sense that the property market is turning a, uh, a, a turning a corner. Compared to the absolute horrors of 2022, especially late last year, you're finally starting to get a bit of a recovery in the market. The year-over-year picture is still grim, and I think it'll take a while for a second for that to turn around. But nevertheless, I think that's that's a positive story. So as you said, you are getting currently a, that that tales of of two China thing going on. Now let, let me ask you some some specifics on that. So I love that I love that phrase that revenge spending. You certainly saw that in the U.S. right when the lockdowns were lifted and we got the the vaccines. Why do you think that we're not seeing something like that in China? Why do you think that uh, kind of curtailed in February? I think, uh, you know, there are a few things that we can talk about. The, the whole thesis that there's going to be revenge spending rests on this idea that during the pandemic, Chinese households have accumulated a mountain of savings. And as soon as they're given the opportunity to spend, they are going to go out there and spend. Now, that I think is very, very uh, wrongheaded and certainly misleading. And it's important to understand that the savings that sit there in the bank accounts regardless of how high the number is, and there's no consensus on that either. It's coming from the fact that people are saving for a rainy day. Uh, the macroeconomic conditions have been so bad that saving uh, your money is the smart thing to do. It's not just the lack of opportunity to spend. The other reasons uh, I think you've seen, especially among the wealthy, which is where the savings uh, have, 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 have jumped, is that property is typically the place where people put their money. Uh, but property is no longer a reliable investment asset class. Um, and so the money that was intended to go there is currently just sitting in savings accounts. That doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to take the money that is uh, intended to grow their wealth and just go buy a, an expensive hand, handbag with it or go take a trip to uh, Paris or Florence. So those are two things I think I want to caution right up front. Coming to your very specific question, why is it that consumers have pared back activity? I think some of it is certainly seasonal. What you got was a bump that was driven exclusively by the Lunar New Year. Um, and now that people are back uh, to their cities, they're either looking for jobs or they're, or they're back at work. Some of that is going to die down till, of course, you get into maybe the late spring uh, or the early summer. But a broader a context is always important. The labor market in China still remains significantly weak, right? There's a very serious employment problem that's going on there right now. And I think that by and large will continue to constrain, uh, even along the way as you get better consumer spending results, will probably put some downward effect. On, on the overall um, state of the Chinese consumer. That's very interesting, Shazad. Uh, so w one question that I sort of have for you is how much of the activity, kind of that change in China for, for this year has been a result of kind of this credit impulse from China and liquidity conditions? We've definitely seen the PBOC take a very different tone and there's kind of a reopening and there's an injection of stimulus going on in the China economy. So how much uh, you know, of, the, of this data do you attribute to that? 
Yeah, I think uh, you know the property story is certainly one where stimulus is 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 really the driver there. What you have seen happen over the last several months is there is most certainly a, a, a better credit access. That is, that is now available to property companies. Mortgage rates have declined. Uh, so there is a desire, you know, the Beijing spent the last year and a half prior uh, really trying to deflate this bubble and go after the problematic developers, Evergrande being one of them, but, but certainly not the only one. And now uh, I, there has been a policy shift uh, that we now need to resuscitate the sector. We now need to have these unfinished projects uh, uh, taken care of. And of course, we need to provide the, the companies that are healthy and are going to be the future of the real estate market and help complete the projects and, and, and carry forward. Uh, you know, let's make sure that they don't start uh, running into problems. So, so let's make sure that they have access to and there's ample liquidity in the system for them as well. That goes a long way to spurring this revival or recovery, I should say, not revival, uh, that we're picking up in property. Stimulus is important there. The other thing, of course, is that the manufacturing sector also is getting pretty good credit access. So you are starting to see banks now being much more willing to lend. There has been top-down pressure to lend as well. Um, that said, the rest of the year is not, in my opinion, uh, going to be, uh, uh, you know, what, again, the consensus seems to be out there, that you're going to get an organic recovery and you're going to get stimulus. Um, I think you're going to be, it's uh, the story for this year is organic recovery versus stimulus, right? So, so if Chinese households uh, are, are, are remain, you know, don't really come out and spend as much as we expect them to, uh, and and the property market recovery either stalls or sputters, then you get a pretty serious, I think, stimulus effort on fiscal and monetary side. But if, but if you know, you are getting the organic recovery, well, then it's actually very good news for Beijing's policymakers. They get to keep stimulus in their back pocket, uh, perhaps uh, to be used next year. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into the show. Just wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Public. Public is an all-in-one investing platform where you can invest in everything from your basics. So think stocks and ETFs uh, to alternative assets. Think fractionalization of fine art. They've got crypto on there, which you guys know that I think is super cool. But the thing that I want to talk to you today about is treasury accounts. So big caveat here is this is not financial advice or investing advice. You guys know that I don't give that. That being said, the story of this year is climbing interest rates in the United States. Public.com as of today, which is March 7th, allows you to get 5.1% in yield from their treasury account. That is 5.1% in yield coming from the US government. If that is something that interests you, I highly recommend that you seek it from public.com as opposed to other sources. And I'll tell you why. Right now, if you want to go try to buy a treasury bond from the U.S. government, you got to go to something called Treasury Direct. It's a site that was designed in the 1970s, and it hasn't been updated since. For my five-year-old brain, it's just way too complicated and clunky. Can't figure it out. I prefer to do it on public, and here's why. There's no minimum. There's no holding period. Super easy UI and UX. Very easy to understand. And they'll even reinvest the bonds at maturity if you want them to do that. So... For me, it's public. I highly recommend that you check them out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. And uh, guys, tell them that I sent you because you know me. I love my credit. For, for some of our viewers who might not be quite as familiar, can you kind of start to get into the, the differences in between how the Chinese system works and the American system kind of works over here? You know, just to go back uh, to one of your previous points about banks being more willing to lend. I recall in one of the, the earlier interviews with Leland, he kind of outlined a difference in that in, in our banking system, there's a big focus on counterparty risk. That doesn't exist quite as much in China because the state can just dictate which counterparty should lend to whom. 
right? Which is kind of a, a funny feature of that system. Yeah. But can you just kind of start to contextualize for us how we should be interpreting some of this data given the different kind of top-down structure of the Chinese system and, and the CCP? And then, um, yeah, let's, let's start there. Yeah, and so you know, in in a nutshell, the Chinese banking system, outside of the the some some private banks that you have, is by and large a non-commercial financial system. In other words, whereas the big players here are what we commonly refer to on the investment banking side as Wall Street, are on the commercial side, of course. Uh, you know, you've got all the major banks that we're familiar with, whether it be Bank of America or J.P. Morgan or Citibank or other international banks uh, that also operate in, in U.S. territories or, or worldwide, really. Uh, you know, you have those as the core players. You don't have really government owned banks that are that. Have, anyway, it's not like the Federal Reserve, for example, has bank branches out there which which lend to businesses or lend to households. In China, of course, the reverse is true. The biggest banks, the big five they used to be, now they're the big six or big seven even, are all government-owned banks, whether it be the Bank of China, the the you know the ICBC, it's et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so the lending structure there is very tightly within the hands of the state, which means that the uh, the policymakers in China uh, uh, you know have the ability at the national level and at the provincial level to exercise that type of political control and decide who, and they can, they can most certainly decide the winners and losers that way by saying you must lend to this particular industry or these particular firms, right? So historically, what have you seen? Large companies are some of the biggest beneficiaries of credit. Large companies oftentimes also happen to be state-owned companies. So state-owned companies mm. have also been beneficial, you know, biggest beneficiaries off uh, either cheap access to credit or very easy access to credit, however you might want to put it. Um, oftentimes, for example, uh, you know, you'll see that SMEs, uh, and it's because especially they happen to be private companies, struggle to get access to credit in the same manner that large firms do. Uh, because, uh, you know, there is a, a very clear idea that, look, you can, and now I'm deviating a bit, but this is an important point for the audience that, mm. you know, a, a state-owned yeah. company is a, and a large company, you give them the credit, it is going to be backed by the government. If there's a default, there will ultimately be a process through which the, you know, the bank's books will be cleaned out as we kind of just saw happen in the case of all the, you know, the, the defaults that you saw in the property market, right? Uh, there's this ongoing game of, uh, of, of how money moves around in the Chinese financial system. Um, but the state ultimately backs up these, uh, these, these state-owned companies um, or these, oftentimes these large companies. SMEs don't, don't have that. And SMEs will often find themselves, unfortunately, therefore, in the back of the line when it comes time to access credit. Uh, but, but, that, but that's a big chunk of it. Uh, and it's related to another point, by the way, uh, uh, for the audience to understand. Uh, when you get things like big defaults in China, you'll often hear are the risk of defaults in China. You'll offer, often hear people out in the West and the United States say, oh, well, this is the Lehman moment. Whenever Grant happened, everybody said this is the Lehman moment. In China, it's a different story because the government owns the banks. The government has, for better or for worse, normally for the worse, the ability to socialize the losses, just step in and do the bailout. It's not like here where, where the sitting Treasury Secretary has to get all the major banks around a table and then beg them to take care of the problem and, and try to work out a deal. It doesn't work that way there. The party directly controls the financial infrastructure that way. 
I, I was, uh, you know, just thinking to myself when, when you were describing some of the challenges for SMEs as opposed to big businesses. Uh, the challenge, though, of course, for businesses is if, if you get too big, then you can have a jackpot situation and nobody uh, might hear from you for a month, right? If you're uh, running something called Infinancial and you start uh, taking away from the money market funds over in China. So it's a, it's a tough line to tread uh, for, for the businesses over there. Yeah. Let's start to talk a little bit about the, the impact that China might be having globally. Uh, so I think maybe that the kind of interesting area to start there is around commodities, right? There's been a lot of speculation. You kind of mentioned oil before, but even other sort of more industrial commodities, China's a large consumer, right, of commodities. So I'd be curious, you know, uh, maybe just starting from the lens of, let's just say oil or something like that, does the, does the China reopening have a chance to, uh, does that create more demand for oil? Should we see that kind of reflected in, in the price of oil? And just how do you see that the reopening kind of impact commodities uh, across the world? Yeah, the, the reopening story um, by itself, right? Should there be China-driven demand jumps in the in in the uh, demand for China-driven jumps in the demand for oil, for the de- mm. you know, demand for iron ore uh, and and copper? In theory, you would think that that is the answer is yes, because now that the mm. economy is opening up, and especially because there's easing happening towards the property market, there are, there's a sense that you know you're getting some fiscal activity taking place. Uh, you know, all that is is a, is very positive, um, and and I think the the speculation or the ideas around being bullish on commodities uh, makes a lot of sense. For example, if you look at our February numbers, if you look at the fiscal activity tracker, we have a proprietary fiscal activity tracker where we say infrastructure development firms, are they uh, are they selling more projects? Are they creating, you know, are new projects getting started? Are they hiring more? Are they investing more? And we take that and we we put that together in, in, in an index. And what we see is that there's a massive jump in February. That's a very, very positive signal if you're if you're a metals trader, for for example, especially we're talking about iron ore and copper and so forth, um, the idea is you know are people going to are people going to get too carried away with this or have they? Again, coming back to what I was earlier referring to as the mega bulls or the super bulls, and I think there is a bit of getting carried away with this because the idea that China's uh, you know spending by the consumers, for example, this year within China um, on travel and, and, and on, on so forth uh, is going to you know, break pre-pandemic records. I think that's very aggressive. C- can it go back to around pre-pandemic levels? Sure, but will it necessarily just break all records or break that those records even? I think that that's a very aggressive position to take. We're not, you know, it's not a magic wand. The economy does need time to recover. Consumers are typically conservative there. Again, upward trajectory, no doubt about it. Much better than last year, no doubt about it. Uh, but certainly better than, you know, many years past. I, I, I think that's where they're getting carried away. Same thing with the stimulus idea that you're going to get stimulus no matter what. I don't think so. I think stimulus is going to be used in a, in a, in a manner, in, in a way to support the economy, but only if it's Needed and where it's needed, and the dict- the size of the stimulus is is still not fully known. I or it cannot be known. I th- I think at this stage. So I you know this is one of those interesting years where there is no reason to be bearish on China. Everybody should be a China bull. If you're not, I want to know why. Um, but people are. There are certain folks out there who again I, I think are getting overzealous maybe in you know about, about this. Yeah, I, th- I think the reason why so many so many folks like to focus on on oil is oil and just the price of energy sort of writ large was an enormous component in kind of the global inflation story that we've had uh, over the course of the last uh, couple of years. Right. 
uh, we did, we did um, uh, for listeners who caught this episode, uh, an episode with Michael Cow about how, you know, his thesis is inflation kind of started with in energy and then kind of leapt over into some of the yeah. stickier components of CPI. Obviously, also a high uh, price of energy tends to co- coincide with big recessions as well, right? So big kind of warning sign when we see when we see spikes in energy. You know, if we're looking over in, in Europe, right, we've kind of steadily seen inflation actually ticking up. And there was a big surprise uh, over this last month, you know, to the to the positive and kind of the, the, the bad side overall. So I guess my, my question to you is how much of this kind of re-acceleration in inflation can we ascribe to to activity in China? Yeah, that's going to be the key thing uh, everybody is trying to gauge this year, including the Federal Reserve. They've been very concerned about China. And China, as a matter of fact, has been kind of a blessing to the Fed and to maybe other central banks as a result thereof for the last couple of years, uh, and especially all of last year, because zero COVID meant uh, that a lot of the inflationary tendencies uh, and push you know, just did not exist. How large you know, it, or how much of it will come from China this year? Let's look at the data first. So the data right now, uh, as we wrote in our note uh, uh, earlier this week, is I think giving a sigh of relief to both policymakers inside of China and, of course, places like the Fed, because inflation is still very, very low. Um, I don't know how big a push we get. Do we get inflation spiking this year? Again, I don't think so. I think the recovery, uh, you know, is going to take its time, uh, you know, and, and even when growth jumps and the consumer is getting reactivated in the in Q2 or in the summer, um, I don't anticipate massive jumps in, in inflation from where we are because the levels are so low where we are right now. Um, I think it will take time, uh, you know, to really start to see those that upward momentum coming in from China. Uh, so, so I don't think that China will be the the big driver of uh, inflation this year. And and let's again, it's very important to keep something in mind. You can have inflation rising within China, as in because of demand. You could have commodities demand rising in China, which, of course, is the point you're making, which it, in, in, you know, it inflicts uh, uh, higher prices, pushes up prices of commodities higher. But in terms of other things, whereas, you know, ch- export driven uh, goods, if ch- demand for exports is declining uh, for Chinese exports declining, Chinese producers and exporters will not be in a position to naturally start hiking prices, right? So the inflation mm. you'll get from Chinese production, and as they are reflected here, I think it's important to keep that keep that element in mind as well, which I think has that sort of effect on Chinese inflation. Uh, I've got a I've got a question, yeah, uh, Shazad, for just just how you think about kind of this the interrelationship in between the the economies of China and the U.S. So yeah, you know, you kind of think about it to to drastically overgeneralize, right? You've got kind of this consumer uh, demand-driven economy over in the United States where the U.S. consumer is kind of this, this engine, right? And then you've also got kind of that the China is the factory of the world and they and they make all the stuff, right? And that's been the relationship for, for a long period right. of time. So I'm curious actually how, you know, a lot, there's a lot of focus being paid to, well, how is the China reopening going to impact everything else, right? Over in Europe and America, but how is a potential recession over in the United States possibly going to impact the recovery of China. I'd be curious how you see that push-pull relationship. Yeah, that, I think that's the right. So I've been seeing a lot of commentary on exactly what you just said right now. How will the reopening in China impact our economy? And, you know, let's understand something. The Chinese are not consumers of our 
uh, of our service exports, you know, not talking about manufacturing exports, actually, right? It's not like we sell a bunch of services to the Chinese economy that uh, now that they're open, all of a sudden, that's going to be, a, you know, a, a great driver of growth for us. That's not the case. The, the relationship, obviously, is, 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 is the reverse. And what that means is that the recessionary headwinds that we are all concerned about here, and we most certainly are starting to see in the manufacturing sector, and now we'll see if it extends elsewhere. These are uh, these are you know negative signals for the Chinese economy. These are not. This is not a good sign for the Chinese economy because what it means is, right as the economy is not ready to produce at you know say full steam ahead because they're not doing the bubble uh, uh, format anymore and within the factories, uh, you know they 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 are maybe getting over their COVID outbreaks or COVID spikes at least for the time being, and they're ready to go full steam ahead. Well, right at that point demand from their clients is going to be dropping. So that, uh, you know, as we had, I think, kind of mentioned earlier in the conversation as well, uh, means that the manufacturing sector is going to stay under pressure, may even see uh, a slowdown, uh, you know, through the rest of this year. The manufacturing sector had already started to slow down. I mean, the rest of the economy wasn't doing too well either, as that was a big driver of it. But I think our recessionary uh, trends here, even if they are going to be shallow, will have a far more will have a far bigger effect on the Chinese reopening than anything else, and and the effect will of course be putting pressure on you know de on depressing growth naturally. Yeah, that that ma that makes a lot of honestly intuitive sense to me. Now, this is the one I, I got to ask you about this, but I know it's very difficult, and this is kind of a, a mushier area. Nobody's really got a crystal ball, but I feel like every day, right? There's another headline that sort of alludes to this growing tension in between the United States and China, right? You, you've probably seen the headlines about TikTok and government officials are going to not be able to have TikTok on their phone. And there was the Chips Act, right, which was a pretty big step from kind of the Biden administration to, to reshore U.S. semi. You know, that interrelationship in between the, the U.S. is the, the demand, the consumer and China as the factory. I mean, how much does this tension threaten that relationship? You know, I think... Um a big, big chunk of it, right? So, so what are we looking at here? So, so we are looking at the coming many years, probably, uh, of, of two very interesting trends happening in China. The one that you talked about, and, and another one that I'll quickly foreshadow here. You have structural issues within the Chinese economy. You have a structural slowdown that is taking place in the Chinese economy, which is a very interesting trend because it'll help determine winners and losers within the economy, and and and, and all sorts of interesting things about economic growth there that so far. Many people didn't worry about because they were so used to the idea that China just grows, uh, you know, and 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 when it doesn't grow, the government puts all this money into the economies and things are still great. That no longer is the case. You've got that thing going on on its own. The other reason, of course, China is so interesting now and is going to be for a long time is what you just mentioned: the geopolitical, the the rise in geopolitical tensions within the United States and China, and that a driver of uh, everything that the markets care about. Um, that is here to stay for a while. We are on the road of a decoupling with China. So when I say we, I mean the United States and China are on the road of a selective decoupling. Decoupling that will take place in the area of manufacturing because there is a serious amount of concern in Washington, D.C. today about the supply chain uh, reliance that, that we have on China here, especially when it comes to critical industries like pharmaceuticals, uh, uh, critical minerals, technology inputs, and so forth. Uh, there is going to be selective decoupling, as we are talking about now, in the technological sphere. This is a two-way street. This is not just American policymakers or lawmakers in Congress being concerned about TikTok and the uses of TikTok by the Communist Party to either censor information 
or as a vehicle to promote our, its, its propaganda uh, or, or, you know, and it's, and it's or fake news or whatever you might want to call it, but also Chinese policymakers and their concern about the use of their citizens' data by, by the United States for the same purposes of surveillance, intelligence, and information, uh, you know, uh, uh, manipulation, propaganda, whatever you might want to call it. There's a desire on the Chinese side to decouple. The Didi IPO that went sour, went bust at the last minute was a great example of that. You've seen the data privacy and protection laws in that country changing rapidly, which are a result of that. You have seen a lot of hesitancy there on the financial decoupling side. And this is where the two meet in many ways uh, for, for, from that data standpoint, right? And the financial decoupling is that third element. You have Chinese policymakers saying, you know what? We don't want all our firms to go to New York City and or to go to New York and list over there because tomorrow American auditors could say we demand, you know, the entire stream of data that you have, which will allow them to learn whatever about us and, and, and you know, use it for espionage purposes and so forth um, or use it for you know, other ways to undermine us. So we, we don't even want that relationship. And certain Chinese companies have already delisted from the, American, from the stock exchange here. Others, I think, will in the future. Many will never show up here. They'll go to Hong Kong or maybe they'll eventually go to Shanghai. Um, and that's where the financial decoupling comes in, which is also, again, a two-way street because by the same logic uh, or, or in a similar vein in D.C., policymakers and lawmakers more specifically, more so than any, any policymakers right now are saying, we don't like the idea that American pension money, especially of the armed services, goes and gets invested in companies that are working for the PLA, that are working alongside the CCP to make it a stronger national power, global power rather. Um, so you have, a, you know, the, the manufacturing supply side stuff, supply chain stuff rather, that's perhaps more of an American driven thing. But when it comes to technology and when it comes to finance, you have, I think, a desire for ultimately a selective decoupling on both sides. But this will, this is not, you know, this is I'm describing to you uh, where what the, what, the, what the viewpoints are today. How do you make this happen? That's a whole different ballgame because the economies are so intertwined and which is why the coming years are going to be incredibly interesting and important uh, for markets to watch and understand uh, because we've never been here before. Yeah. Can, can you help me understand something? One, when, when we talk about this decoupling, I think the natural tendency for most people is to do something very binary and say, oh my God, the US and China relationship is going to break down World War III. And maybe that will happen. I'm, I'm not smart enough to know. But where I, I like to spend time thinking is, let's say that happened on the margin, right? And see the name of the show. There you go right there. But uh, what if that happened just marginally, right? And let's say that the trade relationship just broke down, say, about 25% over the course. I know that's a pretty big difference. But uh, let's say some, some, some amount like that over the course of the next coming years. When I think about that in terms of how that's going to impact the United States, we are going to lose access to a very low-cost labor pool that we've become really reliant on. So we've kind of got two, two remedies there, right? We can either onshore everything back to the United States, which I'm not sure is going to happen, but we're going to, or we'll find other low cost jurisdiction to produce a lot of these goods. But either way, there's probably some inflation there while we figure that out and move supply chain is going to be labor intensive. My question is, what happens to China on the market? Cause they already have some kind of significant headwinds when it comes to growth. I want to get into demographics for a second, but to me, that's them losing maybe 20%, right, in this analogy of their best customer. So what happens on the China side of that equation? Yeah, I think the whole China economic strategy today, uh, and our chief economist has written a wonderful uh, article on this, uh, Derek Scissors has, uh, the whole program now there is to become a 
manufacture of uh, high-tech goods and other technologically advanced products, machineries and software and so forth, hardware and software, um, and, and, and you know, su- become the supplier of those technological goods to other countries rather than what's going on today where China is the, the buyer and the user of it. So China is, of course, trying to change its own place in the global value chain um, as it is. That, that's, that's, you know, that's number one. Um, which means, and that that national challenge, if in theory the United States ultimately gets more and more and more aggressive, and this is not a given, it's certainly outside of things like some export controls we've seen, we're not seeing you know uh, that much aggression out of the Biden administration. Um, I think there are a lot more headlines about things than there are there is actual action um, on the ground. Uh, and and so if, if that happens, then of course you know China is going to uh, be running into uh, trouble. But that but as I just said, that's not a given. So so China is trying to change its own position in the global market. Um, and of course, it's probably ultimately betting uh, that you know not enough countries in the world will ultimately stand up and try to uh, you know uh, align against uh, China to where it would have to suffer these sorts of. Um, issues. Uh, so, so it, this is this is very interesting stuff that we're thinking about and looking at because most certainly, uh, you know, the the supply chain decoupling that we describe is going to have an adverse effect on the Chinese manufacturing sector if it is carried out in full. Again, I say if because there's a lot of talk about these issues right now and a lot of you know people increasingly doing risk and scenario planning in a much more serious way. But as we've come to uh, learn, even with things like export controls and things like chips and so forth, um, the Western world, which is, which needs to, you know, uh, know, which, which is up next in terms of it's their move. um, They are having a remarkably hard time uh, undertaking policies today, at least right now, which are as far reaching as they may seem when you read a newspaper headline. Uh, right. So even today, when the most sensitive technologies are currently barred um, and supposedly there's a deal with Japan and the Netherlands, we don't know what's in the deal. No, no side has made this public. Um, so it's hard to decipher what's even going on. Um, the rest of the business, the rest of things are continuing as, 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 as promised. Right. The Commerce Department is still giving licenses to American companies and other companies to produce uh, other technologies in China and, and to be able to provide these technologies uh, and technological inputs and, and chips and semis and so forth to Chinese companies. Uh, so it's not like there is this very hard and fast rule about cutting China off, even though that's what the headlines will make it seem like that has taken place here. So this is this is all, this is the stuff that you know is is working out in real time. But so far, I can tell you that the political uh, uh, will and the political capital most certainly uh, it, it does not seem to be there. In, in, in such a st- strong and stellar way as, as perhaps you might think when you read the newspapers. Happy to talk about that in more detail, of course. No, that 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 makes a lot of sense. I'm I'm just looking at actually some of the headlines that we kind of aggregated, and you know, a lot of these it's hard to really dig deeper and figure out how serious they really are. So I'm looking at one of these headlines from the Guardian: China instructs state firms to phase out big four auditors, right? Huh? Biden administration approves weapon sale to Taiwan amid tensions with China. That's coming from CNN. So you see all of these sort of these sort of headlines, but it's hard to contextualize really what it looks like on the ground. So I, I think the color that you provided was honestly really helpful there. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think though, if the one point I can make is I think markets are in for a pretty serious ride, uh, you know, wild ride, I should say, um, in the mm. coming years because of, I think, this exact reason. Uh, there is political impetus over here in the United States and other countries to act uh, about the various challenges that are, you know, that, that, the, that, that China is presenting increasingly from a national security standpoint. The national security viewpoint is certainly ascendant. Uh, but being able to gauge uh, inaction from action and action from serious action from severe action. That's a spectrum. And it's going to be, you know, this is no longer about, you know, having somebody just read the newspapers alone and decipher what's going on. Uh, it, it just requires a lot more serious analysis and understanding and knowledge of what's what's taking place in order to be able to successfully do this uh, and think about the impact on one's investments, whether you're a corporate decision maker or whether you're, you're trading uh, in, in the markets. Yeah, very well said. Uh, one, maybe in, in closing, I, I'd love to kind of get your thoughts overall. You, you, you said that this year it would make no sense to not be a China bull, but I'd love to get your, your kind of longer term thoughts. And there was a statistic, you know, we've talked about it a lot on the show in the past, but there was this recent statistic that stuck out to me, which was China has lost 40 million people. That's four zero million from their labor force since the COVID pandemic, which was a pretty shocking statistic to me. But if you look at some of the longer term demographic work, I think Peter Zihan has predicted that China is going to lose something like half of its working age population by the year, uh, you know, 2050 or something, which is not very far into the future. And maybe we can, uh, I'm, I'm going to struggle to actually share my screen here, but I'm looking at a, a chart where you can look at the rate of births and the rate of deaths right. uh, in China. And it is actually crossed. So there is a, uh, the, the death rate is higher than the birth rate in China. So how much of a, of a headwind really is that? Can you kind of help put some of these numbers or uh, you know statistics in context for us? Yeah, the demographic decline is a very serious headwind for the Chinese economy uh, moving forward. And uh, not only because, uh, you know, you're talking about the, the, the decline in the working population and so forth, but you're also talking about the fact that does, uh, you know, the whole idea is can, you know, can China go the way of Japan? The idea being that Japan also got old, but Japan became a wealthy country before it became an older country. China may not reach that status of being a wealthy country. We have to remember China is by, by and large a developing country. You know, you leave Shanghai and Beijing and the big, then the bigger cities and, and you know, and then you start traveling out and you'll realize uh, that China, as a matter of fact, is beset with some of the same problems developmentally that other emerging and frontier markets are. So, so China may become an older country before it becomes a richer country, which of course has all sorts of implications for, for mm. you know, what China is in the world as a global power and so forth. Uh, but the demographic decline is most certainly a very serious headwind. Um, as a matter of fact, a big chunk of that is also why you need that economic model to change, right? Because you cannot just be a country that's a factory of the world if you're going to lose so much of your labor force, uh, which right. oftentimes relies on younger populations. Uh, to, to do mm. the work. Uh, so, so there are all sorts of challenges which you know, ultimately tell us that the Chinese economy that we are all used to for the last, especially since the global financial crisis, which was an economy that first grew, as I said earlier, a double digit pace, then it slowed down to something around seven to eight percent, then six and some percent. And now, you know, we're looking at about five and odd and it'll, it'll continue to slow down. There's a structural slowdown in, pay, in, in, in place. The Policy planners in China also understand that. They very much know that this is coming. And they're actually trying to make sure that they can turn this ship around and go from being this economy that has so far uh, uh, been the product of 
high levels of debt used to generate high levels of investment, resulting in high levels of growth. That The road on that is run out. Even if you were to keep amping up the debt, there's you really just can't get much more out of it anymore, growth-wise. So you need to turn around and, and, and shift the economic model so it relies on domestic consumption of services. But that requires a whole bunch of other investments to take place within the population and, and, and so forth. But that's exactly what they want to do so that they can grow at a much more sustainable pace and have a much more healthier economic expansion and then ultimately make the people richer in that country, become a wealthy country. Uh, that's 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 a project that the party has embarked upon and, and very much understands that it's up, the challenges that it's up against. But what that means is, in either case, whether they're successful or whether they're not successful, growth in China is headed towards a structural slowdown. And that paradigm shift that we're describing in terms of the policy planners, what they're trying to do, and the reality as it's going to play out has very serious implications uh, for uh, for anybody doing business in China or anybody uh, uh, trying to uh, you know trade around uh, China and its impact in, in global growth and, and, and so forth. Mm. So, so maybe let's just, uh, you know, I think we're, we're kind of winding down here, but, uh, just kind of bookend this, this conversation for us here. So we've talked about a whole bunch of stuff, like the, what's happened in China so far this year, economically, what is likely to happen? You know, how does that trickle out? Any just kind of closing thoughts or, you know, summary of the conversation or anything that you want to leave, leave, uh, listeners with? Yeah, I think the thing I want to leave everybody with is that you have to throw out your old China assumptions because they just don't work anymore. Um, and, and and working off of that old playbook leads to a lot of uh, heartache and a lot of pain. Uh, you know, I think assumptions like Xi and the Communist Party are always pragmatic and therefore they will always do what we as market participants think is the rational decision. It doesn't work that way. Think right. about Xi by studying Xi, but don't try to get into Xi's head because you can't do it. Uh, you know, follow the data. Don't follow your what you think or what your assumptions are. Follow the numbers. Um, and and in private data, I think they have a very big role to play in there. Um, and I think start to understand what what I mentioned earlier that the economy, the next ten years are not going to look like anything that you saw in the prior ten years. The picture and and has completely changed, and the the policy priorities have completely changed. Um, you know, you've got we didn't get into the geopolitical stuff, but you've got the risk of the war around Taiwan. You've got all sorts of things about trying to become the global supplier of high technology. You've got potential pushback coming in from Washington, but all these things. Uh, so there's a lot more risk, a lot more unpredictability, and a lot more, a lot more uncertainty. And I think markets and decision makers, anybody who has business in China, or, or, or as I said, is, 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 an, is an investor, needs to start very carefully and systematically uh, and in a very sophisticated way, start tracking China. That old school model of re reading the government's press releases and saying, oh, well, we're going to get 8% this year and let's not worry about it. That's done. You're going to lose money if you do that. Shazad, this has been super helpful and very enlightening. Uh, if folks want to find out more about you or the good work that you do at the China Beige Book, what's the best way to do it? So uh, our website is www.chinabeigebook.com. We also have a very active and oftentimes entertaining Twitter account. It's called, it's the, 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 the tag is at China Beige Book. I'm at Shazad H. Kazi. You can see the spelling of my name, I'm sure, in the interview. Uh, but yeah, follow us and get in, get in touch. Thanks very much, Azad. This has been a ton of fun. We'll have to do it again soon. Oh, I would love to be back. Thank you so much for having me today. Cheers. Cheers.